time I'd uh, been to Southern Ireland or Ireland, and um, I heard the phrase, to be sure, to be sure. And I asked uh, the guys there, you know, why they were using the phrase. And he said, well, um, that's what we always say when we want to be sure. So if you ask your granddad, granddad, why are you wearing belt and braces? Well, it's to be sure, to be sure. And if you park your car on a double yellow line <clears throat> and somebody asks you, why do we have double yellow lines? Well, I was told to be sure, to be sure. So I want us this morning to be sure, to be sure about the most important thing uh, in all the world. So we're going to look at uh, Matthew 11, uh, Matthew 11, and really going to focus on the second verse, which is the question that uh, John the Baptist has, which he sends with his disciples to Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, at this point in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom work is developing and uh, progressing. But what we then read is that not all is well in the kingdom. One of the disciples, uh, faithful disciples uh, of Jesus, John, John the Baptist, is in prison. So the very wider context uh, invites us to stop and pause for a minute and remind ourselves that on the one hand, you may have progress and development in the gospel, but you've also got a particular setback. So developments and setbacks sometimes go together. Progress and problems sometimes walk with us together. And the particular problem here is that of particular persecution. And so the question this morning is, <clears throat> when we are sometimes in our context disturbed by the troubles and the setbacks and the persecutions and the difficulties, that does not mean that there is no progress being made. They both go together. But the particular problem that we're looking at this morning is a personal problem for John, is that he is plagued with doubt. Uh, he's asking a question that is expressing his particular doubt. A question that is troubling him, a question that seemingly is unsettling him at this particular uh, time. So I wonder this morning, as we are sat in the comfort of our homes, can you identify with John? Uh, doubt is a reality for believers. When John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, uh, he sets the hero, Christian, uh, in different places uh, and different contexts on his pilgrimage and on his journey. But Christian spends three days, three nights in Doubting Castle. And there Christian is plagued with uncertainties and plagued uh, with uh, doubts. So here's the doubt of John the Baptist. And again, I'm asking us, I wonder whether we can identify 
with him. I wonder whether the current pandemic and the consequences of that pandemic for us mainly are, it's a nuisance, it's a difficulty, it's an inconvenience. For other people, it's sadly taken their lives. For other people, there are economic pressures and financial challenges uh, in, in the wake of it. So the context perhaps has affected us spiritually and uh, we may have doubts. Here, John's doubt uh, is really concerning who Jesus really is. And so there may be somebody listening this morning, and that's where you are. You're not quite sure yet about who Jesus is. You're being asked to commit to him, but you don't really know. And you may have some genuine questions and doubts uh, this morning. So uh, we're going to look at this honest, genuine question, doubt, that uh, John has. And I want to suggest there are three particular things that we can uh, learn this morning. And the first is we can learn from the very fact that John recognizes his doubt. We do need to recognize doubt. And then secondly, we're going to take a little look at the reasons uh, that form the context for John's doubt. And then thirdly, the response and the remedy that uh, Jesus uh, gives here. My children always find it funny when I decide I who have an impediment on my R to choose uh, <laughs> points in, uh, to illustrate my sermon with that wonderful letter. So recognizing doubt, uh, looking at the reasons for doubt, <clears throat> and then thirdly, uh, Jesus' response and remedy uh, to uh, the doubt. Oz Guinness has a classic uh, little book on doubt, and uh, he suggests that uh, as we recognize doubt, that we recognize the different kinds of doubt. So he says there are three main kinds of doubt that you can have. So you can have what Oz Guinness calls intellectual doubt. That is, you're struggling intellectually. Uh, you're struggling with the information or the facts. Then he says you can have emotional doubt. Uh, I meet quite a few people, particularly men actually, who uh, perhaps we struggle emotionally anyway, or to express our emotions. It's not my problem, but some men have problems in expressing emotion. And the problem is I don't feel. I got the fact in my mind but I don't feel the reality of it, and it's causing me uh, a lack of assurance. So there's emotional doubt. Thirdly, Osginus says there's volitional doubt, the kind of stubborn refusal to believe uh, facts and uh, realities. Well, I think this morning that uh, John, perhaps, in recognizing his own doubt, uh, perhaps is hovering between two. Actually, Osginus says doubt is not, doubt is not a negative thing. Doubt is like someone knocking on the door. So you have somebody knocking on the door uh, and you need to open the door and you need to invite doubt in and you need to chat and you need to think and you need to pray and you need to discuss. 
in other words, you need to recognize there's a knock on the door and the purpose of the knock on the door is actually to strengthen your faith, which we shall see in a minute actually uh, happens. Or says Os Guinness, faith is, uh, or doubt is faith in two minds. So you have one fact in your mind and you have another fact and you just cannot reconcile the two. Uh, one is militating against the other uh, and it's kind of faith is suspended. Uh, you're not trusting as you used to. You're not believing as you used to uh, because of particular reasons in uh, your life. So we're recognizing doubt here and we're recognizing doubt here in John the Baptist, which perhaps may seem quite strange. John the Baptist is the guy who was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. Indeed, Jesus's estimation uh, of John in this chapter, in verse 11 is, I tell you, amongst those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John's greatness lies in the function and the purpose he had in the plans of God. Uh, he's the kind of last of the Old Testament prophets who bridges that moment before God himself comes into the world. So John's ministry was a great preparatory ministry for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may remember some of the early uh, statements of John uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 1. Look, that's the Lamb of God. He's got no doubts on that day. His sermon is packed uh, with a great realization. Look, here is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later on, uh, John, we are told, is the guy who's able to realize when he's asked the question, are you the Christ? No, he says, I'm not the Christ. I'm the one who was sent before the Christ. Uh, he says, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He realizes that he has a function like that of the best friend of the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom has come and says, yes, I'll take my bride, the friend of the bridegroom is just full of joy with that kind of uh, information. That joy is mine and is now complete. So this is where John once was in his experience and in his conviction about Jesus. And then, of course, John the Baptist is the man who gets to baptize Jesus and gets, if you like, the front seat on the day when God audibly speaks to everybody present and says of his son, Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved son. Now, you'd have thought if you were in a service like that and you hear the audible voice of God, that the experience and the conviction that energized that meeting, you would never, ever doubt again. But 
<coughs> circumstances, as we shall see in a minute, have changed for John. Here in chapter 11, verse 2, John surprisingly, John amazingly is asking, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? John, what's happened? Now, if you're surprised at John, you'll be surprised then sometimes at yourself. I am surprised at myself. I am Mr. Preacherman this morning. And Mr. Preacherman and Mr. Congregation at the Bridge, I'm sure there are times when we too have been plagued by doubts. There was a famous Puritan. He'd written tons of books and he had a big theological mind. And on his deathbed, he's asking the pastor who's come to see him, is he really there? Is God really there? And you'd have thought to yourself, man, you've been teaching others that God is there. You've been telling them all about the attributes and the characteristics of God. You've preached and hundreds have been converted and now you are plagued by doubt, even on your deathbed. Well, be not surprised. Here it is. Here's reality. And you this morning may be struggling with some kind of doubt. You may be struggling with your Christian conviction. You may be struggling with your Christian profession. Circumstances may have worked in your situation that has led you to think, is this really true? I remember a friend in ministry telling me once he was going through uh, difficult pastoral times in the church, particularly related to the lack of reconciliation uh, uh, between uh, specific people. And um, he said, I sit there sometimes and I think to myself, is this salvation all that it's dressed up to be? I'm preaching the power of the reconciliation of God in bringing together Jew and Gentile even the reconciliation between God and sinful human beings. And these people that I'm preaching to and teaching and trying to pastor just will not be reconciled to each other. Where is the power of God? Where's the reconciliation and grace of God in this situation? Now, all these things can lead us, I'm suggesting, to uh, doubts. And so we need to recognize doubt. There's a great uh, Welsh hymn writer, uh, William Williams of uh, Pantakellyn Farm in San Dyfri, and uh, he has a great hymn where uh, he asks this, it's a prayer, he says, tell me thou art mine, O Saviour, grant me an assurance clear, banish all my dark misgivings, still my doubtings, calm my fear. In the original Welsh, he has a few more adjectives for his lack of faith and his lack of assurance. He calls it a dry period. He calls it a complex time. He says he's uncomfortable by all the lack of assurance that he has. Now, this is, um, well, we could say Wales is, well, Welsh Wales is greatest hymn writer, got over 800 hymns and was used mightily 
in revival times. And yet it goes through a period of uh, doubt. So let's recognize doubt. Perhaps like John here, we should share it with a few of our friends. Um, we don't want to publicize it on screen uh, to the whole church. You might not even recognize it in a breakout room, but get alongside somebody and share the struggles and share the doubts because you're not the only one. And that's perhaps one of the great lessons here. John is willing to express his doubt. And in John expressing his doubt, tells me this morning, if it's only me and John, well, it's me and John. I'm not the only one that has doubts. So we recognize our doubt. But what are the reasons? There are always reasons for uh, doubt. There are different kinds of reasons, as we've identified with Oz Guinness this morning, that can be intellectual, that can be emotional or volitional reasons. But the key phrase here for us is that while John was in prison, John's context is specific and John is in prison and so he's confined. Here's your man of action and there's no action. Now, I don't know what kind of person you are, but if you are a person of action and action has ceased, that can really affect you. You're Mr. or Mrs. involved and involvement and engagement is all that pumps and drives you. And now there's no involvement and there's no action and it can be really difficult. And you could be asking some big questions. And John is stuck in prison for a specific reason. John is in prison because he's been faithful. Now, I bet you that isn't in the ministry plan of most of us. You know, you're invited to write these five-year ministry plans. I've never heard of a five-year ministry plan that has persecution and prison written into it. But here John is in, in prison because he's been faithful. He told Herod that he was an adulterer. He was breaking God's law. And because of that, he ends up in prison. Uh, here's effective ministry. Here's the success of your ministry. You get put into prison. And so there's a huge disappointment column here, I think, for John. He hears all that Jesus is doing. He hears that the gospel is progressing. He hears that, that the kingdom is extending, but he's not a part of it. I can't but think that John is thinking this morning, I, I just want a slice of that action. But here I am in uh, prison. Or perhaps he has one of these intellectual theological doubts. You may remember that one of John's great messages was, flee from the wrath of God. So John had this long-term view message that ultimately one day God's final wrath is going to be poured out on the unbelief of nations and individuals uh, and lives that rebel constantly against him. John saw that final judgment day and that was one of his great messages, flee from the wrath of God, repent, believe uh, the kingdom. 
And he must be thinking to himself, I hear that Jesus is into mercy ministry. I hear that Jesus is into compassion ministry. I hear that Jesus is loving these sinners. And Jesus is displaying a healing ministry. Well, there's no record of any of that in, in John's ministry. And he might have sat there thinking, to himself, is this really the one? Come on. You need to beef up your ministry, Jesus. You need to be telling them to flee from the wrath to come. You need to be showing them the condemnation of God. You need to be pointing out their awful sins. Well, of course, that was a part of Jesus's ministry. But at the heart of Jesus's ministry was, I have not come to condemn. I have come to save. It doesn't mean to say there'll be no condemnation ultimately, but Jesus has come to save and to rescue. Now, I'm just suggesting John might be sitting there and he's hearing things. And he's thinking to himself, is this really the kingdom work? Is this really the king? Is this really the one that should come? Again, I don't think it's a thousand miles away from where we are sometimes. We see what's happening in the world, particularly during a pandemic. I was even asked this week by a guy in the garage. He said to me, if your God is so powerful, if your God is so mighty, if your God is so big, and I thought, oh, he knows the chorus. Our God is so big, so great, and so mighty. But why is he not clearing up the pandemic? Why is he not sorting out the issues? It can be one of the problems, and we start to doubt. We start to doubt God's, well, not his ability, but we doubt his wisdom in not applying some of his power when we want it and when we need it. So, John, I'm suggesting as all these uh, problems. But... As we recognize the problems that uh, John may have and the disappointments that he may have and the disappointments that we may share this morning, we may share those disappointments. Ministry and Christian life hasn't turned out as we expected. It hasn't really been full of what we thought it would be full of. And health-wise and emotional-wise, and finance-wise, and economics-wise, and spiritual-wise even, you just, you've got that bit of disappointment which leads you to ask uh, the question. So here's a man in prison, and the weariness perhaps of his emotion, and the weariness of his theology, and the tiredness of all the active ministry that he was involved in has brought the man to kind of spiritual burnout uh, and even breakdown perhaps and he's asking that question but as he realizes his doubts and recognizes them and as we recognize the context he does do something vital about it you notice that he says uh, here in the text he sent his disciples to ask him so he's looking out from his prison and he thinks the best thing, the only do, thing to do here is to get to Jesus. Now, he can't get to Jesus physically, so he sends his disciples. He's shared with his disciples and he sends them to Jesus. It's the simple uh, remedy, isn't it? Take it to the Lord. We must tell the Lord how we feel. We must tell the Lord who already knows, but he wants us to recognize and he wants us to realize and here this is what John does. C.H. Spurgeon 
you will not be surprised, has a great quote on this very action of John. <clears throat> Spurgeon says, John sent to Jesus because he was anxious for absolute certainty. He couldn't endure any more the shadow of a doubt. So he sends to headquarters to make assurance doubly sure, to be sure, to be sure. I really got to be sure. So I'm going to Christ, the one who is the source, the one who is the origin, the one who has the remedy in his hands. And so that leads us to our third and uh, final point. John goes to Jesus and John gets a response from Jesus. So what is Jesus's response and what is Jesus's uh, remedy? Well, the first thing I want us to notice is there is no rebuke. Jesus does not condemn John and Jesus does not rebuke John. In chapter 12 of Matthew and verse 20, we have a wonderful verse from Isaiah that tells us one of the great characteristics of Messiah Jesus. We are told a bruised reed, he will not break, and a smouldering wick, he will not snuff out. So the bruised reed of John's life at the moment is not to be broken any further, and the smoking flax of what was once a glowing flame must not be put out. The purpose of Jesus is to heal, to restore, to bring John back to where he once uh, was. And we see that Jesus does this in two ways. Firstly, there's an explanation. And secondly, there's an encouragement. So Jesus explains to John what is actually happening in his uh, ministry. And you notice Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to go back and I want you to tell John what you see and what you hear. Jesus appeals here to objective reality. He says, tell John what's happening. John is confined to prison. You need to get him the message of what's happening. And you notice in verse five, this is what's happening. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is being preached to the poor. Let John know that's happening. In other words, go back and tell John objectively in time, space, and history what's actually happening in my ministry. We must always explain to ourselves what is happening, what is reality. And of course, reality is based on scripture because that verse that we've just read is actually a combination of two scriptures, Isaiah chapter 35 and 61. That's your homework. Go and have a look at those two chapters later. And what Jesus is saying, what is actually happening has been predicted, has been prophesied, has been promised by Isaiah. Isaiah said, one day God is coming into the world. One day God is coming in his own son. 
into time, space, and history, and God's Son will accomplish and achieve great works of healing. God's power will be displayed. And Jesus is saying what Isaiah predicted, what Isaiah prophesied, what Isaiah promised is actually being fulfilled in my ministry. Now, there's a great explanation here that we always need to take hold of. We need to look at the faith and we need to get hold of these two great movements, if you like, promise and fulfillment. What God promised is actually fulfilled in the ministry, in the works, in the life, later on in Matthew's gospel, in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so my faith must always go back to what God has actually achieved, what God has actually performed and accomplished in Jesus Christ. Sometimes if I'm focusing on my works, my merits, my performance, well, I'll be in a pit and I'll be in a prison uh, because that is all about self. Jesus is telling John here to look out and to see that he actually is the yes and the amen of all the promises of God. When Matt uh, sent me the order of service for today and I saw that the first hymn was How Firm a Foundation, I don't think I asked for that. I asked for two others. And I'm getting one of them. But the How Firm a Foundation, that's what we're talking about here. Where does faith find its foundation? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And the word of promise, Jesus says here, is being fulfilled in him. So always go back to the promises of God and see them fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the basis, always, of all our assurance. Has God kept his promise? Is God faithful? Is God trustworthy? Is God reliable? In time, space, and history, is the gospel really true? Is this good news achieving and accomplishing what God has promised? In other words, connect yourself to the word of God. Because the word will always bring us, by the Holy Spirit, greater uh, assurance. So Jesus is not a myth. Jesus is not fantasy. Jesus is history. Jesus is fact. Jesus is uh, reality. And then after that explanation, there's the final encouragement. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus wants the disciples to hear that word and he wants them to take that encouraging word back to the prison. John, don't stumble. John, don't give up. John, don't give in. Persevere, go on. Now is not the time to be giving up. Now that's not an empty promise. <clears throat> which says to John, this is the key that unlocks the prison and you'll be out, mate. No, John, actually, his next time out of prison will be to be headed. John is going to die as a martyr for the faith. 
but his suffering and his current imprisonment must not be interpreted as failure. It is not failure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, pastor, himself imprisoned under the Nazi regime, says that suffering is often the badge of our discipleship. It's tough, it's hard to be a Christian. So John remains in prison, but he remains in prison, and perhaps these are the last words he hears from the messengers, from his disciples, brought back from Jesus. Perhaps these are the last words he hears of Jesus. John, you're blessed. You are blessed. Now, do you think he could live with that? Do you think he could die with that? To hear the words of approval, to hear the words of commendation, to hear the words that would bring him great comfort. Blessed is the man who does not stumble, and notice, on account of me. It's because you are joined to me, John. It's because you represent me. It's because you are linked to me. It's because I am not abandoning you. I'm asking you not to abandon me. The world's disapproval is at its highest point here for John. But the master, the approval of Jesus, is at its highest point. To live under the blessedness of Jesus is the safest place to be. And John has that great encouragement. And I hope it's a great encouragement to us this morning. Blessed are those that do not stumble Dear brother, dear sister, do not give up, do not give in, keep going, because Jesus is commending you. J.I. Packer used to come on holiday to Wales, and uh, he used to come to, uh, 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 well, it's not even a village. He used to come to a farm in a place called Llanamaldoi. He had uh, shepherd farmer friends in Llanamaldoi. John and Mary Jones. And one day he was out walking with uh, John uh, on the hillsides of uh, Llanamaldoi, uh, Mid Wales, Myrionithshire. And it was a foggy day. And uh, John kept excusing, uh, well, excusing the great creator God for sending fog. And so we can't see the splendid mountains. We can't see the grandeur of the mountains uh, and the scenic glory of the valley below is just so hidden from us. Packer, when he's preaching on doubt later on, uses that day to illustrate what doubt really is. Doubt, says Packer, is like fog. It's fog in the mind. And he described the day when, although there was fog, that didn't mean the mountains weren't there. That didn't mean that the valleys had disappeared. And so, when we sometimes have fog in the mind, we mustn't allow ourselves to believe that the valley full of God's love and the mountains full of the greatness of the power of God in Jesus Christ have all kind of gone away. They are still there. And Packer, in that sermon, concluded by praying this prayer. Lord, disperse and clear the clouds. Send the sun of your word and spirit to clear our doubts. Shall we pray? 
Our Heavenly Father, you know each and every one of us this morning, and you know our doubts, you know our fears, you know our disappointments, you know sometimes how we are crushed by failure. And Lord, we ask this morning that we shall see the wonderful person of Jesus, and we thank you that Jesus accepts us as we are. We thank you he has not come to condemn, but he's come to save and to rescue us from all doubt and from all disappointment. And we pray this morning that we will look again to your word, the word that tells us it is finished. The Messiah has died. The word that tells us this morning that the curtain has been torn in two and there is a way and an access to God. We pray that we will look to the word this morning that tells us uh, that all the legal transaction has been paid. And we pray this morning that we will know and hear the voice of Jesus Christ telling us, you are mine. We are bought at a wonderful price. And we pray this morning that whatever doubts we've come into this meeting, that some of them and most of them will be dispelled by the Son and uh, the wonderful Son uh, of your word and spirit working in our lives to give us a greater assurance in Jesus Christ. Amen.